You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, guys. Hey, big week on the podcast, in my opinion. Super big week. One of the biggest. Uh, we had a little live event over there at NYU. What, what, what are our hosts called there, Evan? It was the, they're the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute, and it's the literary reportage program that hosted this event, at which the special guest and interviewee was, Max? Gay Talese. Yes. Gay Talese. None other than. Uh, he was incredible. Well, what a wonderful man. Yeah. Uh, this is, uh, we're, we're peaking here. We're, uh, we're coming over the mountain and uh, headed down after this. This was awesome. It was weird to uh, like fall in love with someone in front of so many people. <laughs> it is true that we'll, it's impossible we'll have someone better dressed on this podcast than Gage. Oh, man. It took me so long to get dressed on Thursday morning. I could not figure out what to, like, I had no, I had no moves. I had no idea. <laughs> You look great. I thought you looked great. That's what Gaitley said when I walked into his house. <laughs> the best thing that happened to me. <laughs> uh, if you're looking to look great, uh, you should check out uh, Warby Parker. Uh, it's a new concept in eyewear, and they're our sponsor. I think we got one more sponsor. It's Tiny Letter. Oh, yeah. The good folks at Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's from the good people of MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here is Max Gaitley's thank you to everyone who uh, helped this uh, event happen. Hi, Gay Talese. How are you doing? I'm very comfortable. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be uh, talking to you. I have many things I'd like to talk to you about. But I was wondering if, well, uh, this is not the, we met earlier today, but that was not the first time that we had met, which you probably don't remember. A couple years ago, you gave a talk at the Times. Uh, it was like when page one was coming out. And I was there, and uh, I left, and you were standing outside, and I was wearing, I'm sure, like, dirty jeans and a t-shirt or something. And I looked at you, and I sort of, like, worked up the courage and went over and introduced myself to you. Mm-hmm. And I got over there, and I said, hi, Mr. Talese, I'm a, I'm a really big fan. Um, and you said, well, thank you. And then we stood there for a second. And then I realized I hadn't thought of anything to say to you. <laughs> and so we were just standing there outside the building, 
And finally, you kind of looked at me, and finally I, I said, uh, I'd really love to talk to you sometime. Uh, which, is a, which is a preposterously dumb thing to say when you are standing talking to someone. And, uh, and your response was, it was, it was so great. You had your hat on, and you were like, I'm in the phone book, look me up. That's what you said. And you know, I was like, well, that's just the greatest, coolest, gay police thing ever. You know, it was awesome. And then I walked away, and I just had this huge pit in my stomach. And I was just like, oh, what a terrible first impression I must have just made. And as I was reading all your stuff and reading these interviews you've done in preparation of, of talking to you tonight, making a good impression, making a good first impression uh, comes up both in your stories and when you're talking about your work. And so I was wondering if maybe we could start with you sort of explaining how you see the value of making a good impression on someone, a good first impression on someone, as you start the process of getting to know your subject. How important is it to make that first impression? I think it's, it's very, very important. <laughs> Not that you failed, even though you're wearing your T-shirt and you had a, probably a baseball cap on backwards. I don't know what you look like there. <laughs> but um, my, my life as a journalist really had its origins in, in the fact that I'm the son of, shopkeeper, of two shopkeepers. One was a tailor father that obviously influenced the way I dress. But more important was my mother's dress shop. And the, what made that so important is that I watched the way she communicated with the women who were her regular customers. These are women who were at least 10 to 15 pounds overweight and were women in their mid-40s. And they were the women who... Your mother catered exclusively to women who were 10 to 15 pounds overweight? She did because these are the women who had heavy pockets or deep pockets. <laughs> this was this, this a small town in the southern part of New Jersey, south of Atlantic City. And I watched uh, people coming and going in the dress shop. But the middle of the afternoon when I got back from school, I would hang out from 3 o'clock to 6 until the store was closed, helping my mother to the degree that I could. <clears throat> I was 10 and 12 and 14. And what my job consisted of was dusting the counters where some of this costume jewelry was placed for display, getting the cardboard boxes, which had tissue paper inserted within after a dress had been sold, and these women would walk away with a box. But what I was really then, in addition to being a factotum at my mother's dress shop, was listening or eavesdropping on the conversations that she had in the middle of the afternoon with her regular customers, people who had a lot of time, a lot of money, there were husbands were the you know the, the the head of the Buick agency in town or the maybe the the mayor's wife or the leading surgeon's wife <clears throat> and they played bridge and they and the, even in the wintertime wore white gloves and they were the people who were the social social trendsetters of the town in a more conservative way mm -hmm. and in summertime it was a beach resort Ocean City by name, they didn't go to the beach. They spent their afternoons wandering around the one main street, which is where my parents' store was, and just chatting as they looked through the frocks that were on display. And they talked a lot about their private life, what they liked, what they didn't like about the frocks, but also what they didn't like about changing trends. And this was in the 1940s, the World, the World War II period. All I want to do, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I want to say my origins as a journalist were drawn into a meaningful way 
by number one, overhearing conversation and being interested because the, the, even though the conversations that my mother had were of small town affairs, they were not anything that would make the newspaper. And these women themselves would, if they got an obituary, it would be because they married somebody who was newsworthy, the mayor of the town or the Buick dealer head. But the second thing was that I watched my mother's way of communicating and asking questions without being nosy. She would ask, she knew everybody's first name, and how is your, how is your son doing it at the University of Pennsylvania, or, or, or maybe there was wartime and somebody in the And she'd ask these questions, and then the women would talk, and my mother would know when not to ask a question that interrupted the flow of the dialogue. And I just watched as a boy, eavesdropping behind a counter, watching these women give voice to the community in a time of an international event, which was World War II. And they're talking about nylon stockings, which you couldn't get much better. You couldn't get silk stockings, or, or rationing of butter, or the cost of gasoline, or the fact that they had maybe a, a soldier son, either in Europe or Asia at that time. So I was getting reflections of the war being echoed within a dress shop mm -hmm. in a small town. And I thought I was learning something about the war from the reaction of the women who were allied to the war, connected to the war by virtue of perhaps having a, a son or daughter in, in the wax or a son in the army. And then in the evening, if I can go on just a little longer. Sure. My father's Italian. My father was born in Italy, and he left to come to America in 1920. He became a citizen in 1928. I was born in 1932. So in World War II, in 1944, when the war, 43, when the war was coming to a close for Italy, it was losing, and it was already invaded. I had an Italian-born father getting along with the American customer, speaking English reasonably well, though with an accent. But privately, after the store was closed, and we had an apartment above the store, he would tune into the war news, and he also read the New York Times every day. He got it, it came in two days late because of the circulation wasn't so great in those days. But he would, I would see him reading the war news very avidly, and at night turning on the radio. And so the war, which is when I was, you know, being a child of the war, I was not old enough to fight in it, but old enough to remember it, and also to remember, more importantly, how even in a little one two-story building with an apartment upstairs and a store downstairs with strangers or not-so-strange customers coming in and out, in and out, all of them very securely American in this Protestant town, Ocean City, right wing, so it still is. And upstairs we have the immigrant tailor with his, with, his, with, his, with his wife discussing what they would not discuss downstairs in the daytime. Mm -hmm. So I thought this little property, one of maybe 400 buildings on Asbury Avenue, which was the main street of this town. There is the international event that has its, has its impressions upon two people. One is the, the tailor of the Italian origin, who had brothers fighting in World War II on the side of Italy against the Americans. And so as a reporter, I was getting, first of all, a sense of the larger community as the voices of the women mainly. 
None I was getting after hours when the store was closed, a reaction to the world events from a very defensive Italian-born father who wanted to be, he was a citizen, and, and, but he wasn't so much at night fully embracing, embracing the American triumph in Italy. So I had the conflicted father. Okay. And I thought in terms of reporting, and I learned this then, but I've seen it, it compellingly and, 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 and everlastingly and largely, a small place can be a place you can relate to a big story. And none of it is news unless you write it in a way of a story. So we're talking about storytelling that is not fiction, it's repertorial. Mm -hmm. But if you see it in terms of a story, the woman who has the dress shop and the man who is a tailor and communicates with, through their customers to the larger community, learns something about the larger community because in the case of the tailor, he's fitting a man who might be the mayor of the town. He's fitting him and he's dressing him and he's watching him and he's listening to him in the dressing room. And the woman who's selling the dresses, my mother, who's more articulate, she was born in Brooklyn of Italian uh, people from the same part of Italy as my father, Southern Italy, Calabria. But she was more assimilated and I got the idea of a partly assimilated father and a kind of totally assimilated mother, both wanting to know from their customers, what is it like to be an American at a time when America was at war, leading the triumph in World War II. And us, at times, my, to my father, being on the wrong side of the war emotionally. Mm -hmm. So being on the wrong side of a war emotionally for me gave me a sense of alienation, which is a very valuable thing to have as a reporter. So when I went to, to, to uh, finish high school and later on went to college, it wasn't journalism training or graduate degree in reporting that gave me what I wanted to be a chance to be. It was my alienated background, my insufficient education in the mainstream. I had a very bad record in school. I didn't go to good colleges because my records as a high school student were very poor at a time when GIs filled up colleges after World War II and the GI Bill. You had to have really good records to, to be in a decent college. So I was sent away to Alabama, which I only got into because my father had a, had a customer who was at Alabama. So this is being you know, I was at a different place, Alabama during the 1950s and Ocean City during the 1940s. So I had a background that virtually amounted to nothing useful. Mm -hmm. And yet, because of my experiences, I was able to apply to my ambitions as a young reporter when I came to New York in 1953. Much of what gave me a sense of, of familiarity with people. You follow me? Well, that was an amazing answer. I don't totally follow how it's an answer to the good impression thing, but it was a it was a really good story, and it seems to me like it was the kind of story that you tell in every kind of piece that right. you write. There is right. there is going to be a section that is maybe a little bit longer than you would think, where you're going to explain the full origins of your subject. And I'm very much, I'm interested in the background of everyone. And I'm interested in comparing it to me. Well, maybe we could use a story to sort of flush that out a little bit. So the last piece that you wrote for The New Yorker was a profile of Joe Girardi, the Yankees manager. Maybe you could help me understand sort of, well, A, why, why you want to write about Girardi, but B, how you start that process, how you, well, how you okay. reach out to him. I wanted to write about Girardi because back to Atlantic City, New Jersey in 1944, it started there. Started there with the Yankees. Spring training was always in St. Petersburg, Florida, 
this is when the year of, of, of Joe DiMaggio, before he went to the war, and back to, back to the era of, of practically Babe Ruth. The Yankees trained, spring training was in St. Petersburg for years and years. But with the coming of World War II and gas rationing, <clears throat> teams such as the Boston Red Sox trained in, uh, about 15 miles away from where I live called Pleasantville, New Jersey. And Atlantic City, New Jersey was only 11 miles from where I live. It was where the Yankees trained beginning in the summer of, of the spring of 1944. And at the time, I'm 11. So I go to watch the team. I get on the trolley, takes 11 minutes, go up to the coast and watch this team. Mm -hmm. So I've been hooked to the Yankees. Okay. In, 19, in 2012, or 2000, yeah, it was 2012, I think, I'm, the Yankee manager is Joe Girardi. Um, not a really flamboyant character. He's not anti-flamboyant even. Maybe he is. <laughs> and I, uh, David Remnick, who was publishing a few pieces, I, I said I'd like to do that, and he gave me the the assignment. And when I'm writing about an Italian... As you often do. As I often do. It's like Roth writing about the Jews. It's like Bill Kennedy writing about the Irish of Albany. We have a real insight and an advantage in that both when we talk, as I often always, always do about background, I can see the background, whether it's a generation or two generations or three generations removed from me. Because after all, I'm about 50 years older than Joe Girardi. He's in his 40s, and I'm, in, I'm, I'm 81. So there's a lot of time between our lives, when he was young and when I was young. I his grandfather was young. I mean, it, there's really... But on the other hand, I can go back to Joe Girardi and ask him about his grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I'm on familiar territory, because I know about the Italian immigration movement, I know about the assimilation. Well, two of your most famous pieces, Sinatra and Joe DiMaggio, also Italian guys. Right. Actually, both both of them were. I think both of them were fifty-one when you wrote about them, and Girardi is forty-seven. Yeah. So it seems like you got a thing for Italian guys around fifty. I do have a thing uh, for Italian <laughs> guys, but it is it is it is like you but write. Do you think? Do you think you're kind of writing about yourself? Are the exact oh, part every, of every writer is writing about himself, even if you pretend you're not. You are. But here's why you are. Your choice of subject or the subject that you're maybe inherited from or, or you're assigned by an editor how well you do with it it's how well you get to know the people we talked about acceptability and a lot and 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 um access before i think we started on the subject yeah. of access we didn't get beyond appearances but we'll get to it yeah having access when i had i had no access with frank sinatra not at all part yeah, of it that. was bad timing when i got the assignment which i didn't want to do you probably know that because it's been published before, but it was an assignment that was, a, that was given to me by the editor of Esquire. And the editor of Esquire was looking for, as editors are often looking for, celebrity. They want celebrity journalism, sells copies at the newsstand. I didn't want to do Sinatra because he'd done so much, but I did accept the assignment because I had, I, I had to get paid and I had a contract, no, so I did it. But I could, when I got to Sinatra, he wouldn't talk to me, I didn't need him because I knew from Sinatra, I grew up in 1940s when Sinatra was on the Lucky Strike hit parade on the radio. So as a kid in the store at night, I would listen to Bing Crosby, but also to Frank Sinatra on the radio every night in this little seashore resort in the wintertime, especially. Um, and I listened to him through the 50s. I never wanted to meet him, but I thought I didn't have to meet him because I knew his music. And... I knew something of his background because he was so famous. There's so many articles written about him. 
he was, you know, raised in Hoboken, and his father was a fought under was a prize fighter, fought under names, an Irish name, and, and his mother was a little like a like a little Bella Abzug of the Italian movement, politically inclined woman, and a boisterous, pushy broad, <laughs> and his father was a meek kind of fire department guy uh -huh. who had once, when he was young and reckless, been a prize fighter, a welterweight prize fighter. Who I think was fighting under the name Slapsy O'Brien yeah, because took Italians, an Irish name, right? Italians couldn't even get a job as a prize fighter. They were so low on the po uh, totem, totem pole. I mean, Governor Cuomo, Mario Cuomo's father, was at the same time cleaning sewers. So the Italians were really like, like we were the, we were the the Arabs of that period in terms of popularity today. And, um, and so I knew about Sinatra, and and then when he wouldn't talk to me. At first I thought, great, I don't have to do this stupid story. <laughs> and when they wouldn't let me off the assignment, I said, well, I can talk to other people. And why? Because I know how to talk to other people. Because I've been talking to other people since I was a boy in the store. In other words, being with minor characters, those women in my mother's shop were not major characters. They were not, they were not anybody that anybody except in the town ever heard of. But I saw stories in those people. So when I'm talking to Frank Sinatra's, the woman who takes care of his toupees, right. That woman could could have been buying dresses for my mother. When I talked to somebody that worked in a in a in an orchestra, uh, the big Nelson uh, Harry James Orchestra, maybe the third trumpeter, I'm talking to somebody that that could have been working in my little town, maybe in the, at a wedding, uh, working in a band at some local wedding. So these are people I knew, even if I didn't know them. And Sinatra I knew through his reputation. Right. Rather, I wrote around the story because I'm comfortable with minor characters. Hey, it's your co-host Aaron Lammer with a quick word from our sponsor, Warby Parker. Warby Parker is a new way to buy glasses. Um, I can say first that their glasses look great. It's not the overwhelming experience you're used to when buying glasses. Um, they sent me a pair this week, and I'll tell you how it works. You go on their website, pick out five frames. They'll mail them to you. Try them on. Pick the ones you like. Log back onto the website, put in your prescription, put in the promo code LONGFORM. You'll get expedited three-day shipping and help support this podcast. They'll be to you very quickly, and you will no longer be that guy who only has one pair of glasses and remembers that time that his father dropped his glasses in a glacial lake while he was backpacking. Uh, you'll also feel great because uh, when you buy one pair of glasses, another pair goes to charity. Uh, they're $95 with lenses, $145 for sunglasses. You can't beat those prices. Warby Parker, I've been getting compliments on them all week. Thank you to Warby Parker. Here's Max and Gaitalese. You just touched on like 800 things I want to ask you about. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Sinatra. There's one thing. So you did an interview this week where you annotated the story. And it was everywhere on the Internet. People were incredibly excited to read it. How often do you reread that stuff? Why do you think that story endures the way that it has? I don't know. In fact, I never thought it was any better than what I've written about other people. I think part of this, the appeal of that story, it was a non-interview. I mean, to most people, oh, he didn't talk to Sinatra, so you don't need to talk to people to write about them. That's not always true. In fact, more often than not, it's not true. But it was true only in the case of a super celebrity, mm -hmm. as Sinatra was then more than ever. 
And um, were people as excited about the story when it came out as they appear to be now? Very simply, I when I left the New York Times after ten years as a daily reporter, I went for one year to magazine writing. I had written magazine pieces on my free time as a reporter at the Times, many people, including for Esquire, maybe a dozen or more. But what was my first year in '65 was a free man. I first, be, I first knew freedom from the daily deadline in a strike that happened in New York in 1963. It went on for three months. That was the first time in my life I didn't have to work five days a week for the New York Times, and I had an opportunity to get out of town for maybe two or three weeks, because if you work for a daily paper, you have two days off and you have to be, I couldn't go far. Right. But when I had that strike, I took a couple of assignments for Esquire, where I was, I was one time in London for 10 days interviewing Peter O'Toole in 1963. Right. I could never have done that. But, so I knew what it was like to have freedom. And I you liked the it. freedom. So when I quit the Times, I didn't have any money. And my wife and I were just parents of a one-year-old daughter. So we needed, she had a, a job and I had a job, but I needed steady income. So Esquire gave me a six-piece contract for the amount of money I was making when I was a reporter, which was roughly 15000 a year. This is 65 or so? Six, 1965. So I had, and I, my first piece was, I think, one of the best pieces I ever wrote in my life that no one ever heard of. It's called Mr. Bad News. It was about some obituary writer. There is really where creative reporting has to excel to get your readers interested because you're not writing about a famous person. You have to really describe him. It's like a short story, like a fiction writer must describe a character that comes to life, whether it's Updike or, or, or the aforementioned Roth or, or Fitzgerald, anybody. Fiction writers have to create a character and recreate a character. In the case of Herman Woke, they kept Captain Quig is uh, so well known that it's in the dictionary, mm -hmm. Quig. I mean, that's just creative. What, what is journalism? It's not creative. So what it is, is you have to let people that are not well known, like everybody I grew up with in the store, if you want to write about them, you have to describe them as if you're a novelist or a short story writer or a playwright. It's but, creativity. That but it guy, has to be factual. The, the obit writer, Alden Whitman was the guy's name. Did you... Did you see that character in him before you started spending all that time with him? Was he? Was yeah. there a reason you picked him? Yeah, there was, because I read Melville's uh, Bartleby. I read a lot of fiction. I mean, not a lot of fiction, but the little fiction, the little reading I did was fiction, because there's no good nonfiction when I grew up. When I grew up in Ocean City, New Jersey, I never heard of The New Yorker. But I did hear of The Saturday Evening Post, and I did hear of Collier's, which was once a very popular magazine. And it was on the newsstands in Ocean City, and I'd read the Saturday Evening Post. There was no writer of nonfiction in the Saturday Evening Post that was any good. There were sometimes, however, short stories by F. Scott Fitzgerald in the Saturday Evening Post that didn't, maybe couldn't be sold other places, I don't know. So I read short stories, and what I wanted to be, my ambition in life was to be able to write short stories without changing the name. Right, short stories with real names. That's right. And so... Um, in trying to ask, ask, ask question, or answer your questions about method, um, my method was to try to get to know the people really well, and I hoped were not too well known, so I could then really be the first to introduce them. And that was Alden Whitman, the obituary writer. Right. The second story I wanted to do under my six per year contract, I wanted to write about the managing editor of the New York Times, who at that time, named Clifton Daniel. Of the six stories, you wanted to do one on the obit writer and one on the managing editor? I had, I had an ambition. I'm a rather almost 
devious in my full intent. I wanted to use Esquire with the, the 15,000 I had guaranteed for my six pieces. I really, when I left the daily reporting job at the New York Times, I thought that the people I work with, reporters and copy readers and editors and executives and copy boys and the elevator operators and everybody that worked at the Times building, which was 229 West 43rd Street, where I had spent the better part of 10 years of my life. I was never a foreign correspondent. I was never a political reporter. I never wanted to be a political reporter. I wanted to stay in New York. Yeah. And more or less, I learned what, the, what was inside the building. That building was my father's and mother's store. That's why I saw the building. It was 14 stories high. But it was like the two-story place where I was born and reared, my, the dress shop and the apartment on top. I saw the Times City Room as like this floor of the dress shop, tailor shop. And the people that came and went, copy readers, editors, floor sweepers, window washers, they were all part of the, of the whole daily process of the Times reproducing itself each day as it was born in the morning and died in the afternoon with a, with a new story. I saw that New York Times building as just a location, like, like my own background was a location in the store. I wanted to write about those people, and I thought these people are more interesting than the stupid stories the Times covered every day. They're it's much more interesting. You're always telling people that they need to get out of the office, but, and, but you maybe you just want everyone to get out of the office so you could tell the story of what was going well, on in the office. So uh, this managing editor was fascinating because he was married to the former President Truman's daughter, Margaret. But more important, his office, his office had on the walls photographs seven or eight photographs of men who, had, who previously had been managing editor at the Times. One was a man named Carr Van Anda who'd been the managing editor when the, Lucid, when, when the Titanic sank and how he directed the paper to covering the Titanic. One picture. Another picture was a guy named Jimmy James. He was the new managing editor of the New York Times during World War II. Another guy, Turner Catledge, was when I was alive, he was a... Um, he had covered, he had directed the Times coverage of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, the, the Montgomery bus boycott, the, the woman in the back of the bus story. He'd been from Mississippi. It was interesting to have a man from Mississippi be the manager of the New York Times at a time when Mississippi was, 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 was like, was, it, was, it was like where the Taliban were. I mean, it was just, the, Mississippi was really enemy territory at this time. And so was Alabama, where I went to college. Right. And I thought it's great. So here's the story. And all that wall, all those photographs, those framed photographs of previous ma managing editors in the number of seven or eight, preceding Clifton Daniel, who became the editor, just about when I was about to leave the paper, uh, all of them could tell the history of New York Times coverage of the world. Not the city, the world, the war, the wars, and the, the economy, and the Great Depression, and, 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 and then later on, the civil rights movement, and the all the events that were topical in the 1960s, leading to the anti-war marches of Vietnam, all this stuff was in the mind and vision of those people who had their pictures on the wall in this one room. I thought, if I could know those guys' stories, even though many of them, most of them were dead, except a few were still around, I can write a book about the New York Times. Wow, it's never been done from that point of view. Right. So I wanted to use Esquire as much as I could to get them to fund my research, I'd write an article about Clifton Daniel, but I'd get to know much more about Clifton Daniel than would go with the article. All the rest was gravy for me. I, would try, I did three pieces out of the six on what I wanted to do. One was on Clifton Daniel, mm -hmm. and the other one, just for your information, was on a great reporter named Harrison Salisbury. Nobody knows who he is. He was the greatest reporter of my lifetime. 
because he was the only reporter who took on the American government during the Vietnam War, prior to Halberstam. He was like an older Halberstam. The two of them were giants in my memory. And if we had Halberstam and Salisbury covering Iraq, there would never be an Iraq. There would never be a war, because they would have caught this government and its weapons of mass destruction fraud, unlike those finks in Washington who cover the news now. They would have done something. But we have no Halberstam. We have no Salisbury. But I made Salisbury a great hero in my writing about him. And he's big in my book, but I did it for Esquire first. So Esquire let you run three of the six on people. Yeah, the, the other two were Dimaggio and Sinatra. <laughs> right. Well, that, I, I hadn't realized that before. Uh, I was prepping for this conversation. I didn't realize that Mr. Bad News, I think, is not a story that people don't know. I think that story is uh, hugely famous and, and wonderful. That came out, I think. That was my first piece. Yeah, that came out. I have it written down. That came out in February. And then April, Sinatra comes out. And then in July... DiMaggio comes out. That's like the greatest streak in the history of magazines. That's like four months. But the best piece was, was really Mr. Bandos, and the next best piece Why do you think is, that was is, the... is Salisbury. I mean, the uh, next piece is Clifton Daniel. That led to, to, to the first success I've ever had, was The Kingdom of the Power. It came out of that piece, the book. And I quit, the, I quit the, that one-year contract the next year. I must do that book. And I, and I did it. It took me four years, but he did. I'd like to know why you, you think Mr. Bad News is the best of those stories. Frank Sinatra has a quote. Yeah, yeah, Esquire yeah. itself said it was the best story they've ever run. Like that's, well, but everybody knew Sinatra. Everybody knew Sinatra, and so I had an advantage because my readers had curiosity about a man more than I had curiosity about him because I knew so much about him. I read so much about him. You couldn't help it. He's so probably hundred cover stories of that guy in one year. And he was at his height when you wrote that piece. Yeah, he was. He was. But um, I'm not thinking about Sinatra. I'm thinking about nonfiction, literary nonfiction is what I'm thinking about when I was a kid. Because I wanted to be a short story writer. I told you, like, yeah. like John Cheever, like Irwin Shaw, like, and maybe this would be right, I, I read The New Yorker. When I came to New York, I find, oh, this is a magazine called The New Yorker. As a copy boy, I started reading. I never heard of The New Yorker until I came to New York. And I read these wonderful stories, Sailor Off the Bremen, yeah. Uh, Girls in Their Summer Dresses, Erwin Shaw. I came upon a short story collection, the most famous story I've ever read, and the most story that most shaped my life was Fitzgerald's Winter Dreams. Well, that story is so beautiful, and I wanted to write like Fitzgerald wrote, except I wanted to get the facts right. And so, and, and there's a little bit of uh, Winter Dreams in the Sinatra Beast, in the opening paragraphs. It's like, like a short story that, that Fitzgerald, with, with all due respect, Fitzgerald, uh, could have written and probably would have written 10 times better, of course, than me. But anyway, I, I was inspired by short story writers. I was not inspired by any of the, the nonfiction writers who are writing about famous people or writing about political people. They're writing about presidents. They're writing about generals. They're writing about movie stars. And I didn't want to write about Sinatra because he was a movie star. I get, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to get away from celebrity writing sometimes. Or if I did write about celebrities, it would be at a time when their celebrated life was past. That's DiMaggio. Right. And the aftermath of glory is DiMaggio. Perfect for me. That was one you wanted to do. Yeah. That's what that I one wanted. wasn't assigned. No, that wasn't assigned. There's a dignity about DiMaggio in that story. And I wonder how important it is to you that your subjects... Uh, Dignity is the word I want to hang on to. Okay. There's a dignity about everything I write. 
Yeah. If I am not, if I'm not, if I'm not feeling respect, I don't write about them. If I'm not res- feeling respect for that person, I've written about some pretty notorious people. I've written about some slimy pornographers, Al Goldstein of Screw, and, and the book called Thy Name is Wife. I respected Al Goldstein. Uh, a killer like Bill Bonanno in the book called Honor Thy Father. I respected Bill Bonanno. So well, how can you respect? Easily. I can, I can make that bridge in terms of morality and, the, and reevaluating what is virtue. I can do that because I see things from different sides because I feel that anybody who wants to be a journalist or a good journalist or a good writer, and they can be both too, has to see things from different sides, cannot be so directly so linear, cannot mm-hmm. be so goal-oriented. I'm going to do a story in such and such and do that kind of story. I never know what I'm doing when I start. It emerges gradually to me. It's a story. And sometimes I get so deeply in the story, I find there's no story. And I back out of stories, too. I don't talk about much about that, but I do. Well, there's one that you that you kind of famously backed out of the, the book about Iacocca. And there was an Italian. No, no, Italian guy. I know. Yeah, probably right around 50, I think. Um, maybe we could move this forward a little bit more. I think that um, it, it's a safe thing to say that uh, most journalism today is not fueled by uh, a curiosity based in respect. A lot of people are writing about people uh, well, that they don't respect. That, well, that, well, maybe maybe I, I should be careful because there are a lot of people that I think are, are young in their 30s who are very good writers of nonfiction. But in terms of daily reporting, of newspaper reporting, there are not people now, and I read, well, I, maybe, I, only, I read the New York Times two hours a day I spend reading that paper. I know that paper. I don't know the Washington Post. I don't read a lot of papers. I never read anything online, so I don't know what's going on. But I do read the New Yorker cover to cover every week. And I read the New York Times every day. It takes me two hours to go from page one to write. I read everything. The financial don't start pages. With the sports. No, I start in the front page. Uh, and I don't see Halberstam anymore. I don't yeah. see Harrison Salisbury anymore. I see a lot of very fine, well-educated men and women, and they're wonderfully educated, with the best elite educations that are common in journalism. And when I was young, they were not common. We were all at third-rate universities. And nearly all of the people I knew and respected, my, my, my contemporaries, were from backgrounds where we were the first of our generation, of our family, to go to college. There are some exceptions, like Halberstam was an exception. But Halberstam being Jewish at Harvard at that time was very interesting because he was just like the post, he was the first generation of Jews who went to Harvard, a place like that, that weren't on a quota system. And Halberstam had a real edge about him. Halberstam had a boy you talk about, about feeling pissed off at the world. My he, dad's told me about 8,000 times about being one of two Jews at Williams and then putting them right? in the same room. Yeah, so well, that kind of story perfect, that comes up That's often. a perfect journalist. <laughs> that's a perfect journalist. Not, not like, like, like guys who, who, who are the Jews of today or the Italians of today or the Irish today. They go to college with, they go to Yale and Harvard and Stanford with the people who run the world. So this is what I wanted to ask you. If you graduated college in 53, if you were graduating from the University of Alabama today, you were 21, how would you navigate this world today? Like, how, how would you, how would you do your thing in 2013? I could do this. I would be. I would be how would I do it change? What I did then, in 1953, to get a job in the New York Times is what I would do today, and it would work. What I did then, I'll tell you, it would work now. Well, the way I worked then as a reporter is what I do now. I haven't changed 
I don't think I've changed except get older. I don't think I've changed a bit as a journalist. Being on, doing your research more than you ever need, doing it in person, looking at faces, never using the phone if you can avoid it, showing up. I'm unannounced sometimes. Just show up. Don't make it. Just knock on a door. You're still showing up. Showing up is, is part of it. Making a good impression, which you when we first sat down, we were talking about that. And I'll tell you, I'm not selling clothes today, but I'm telling you, being well-dressed, it doesn't hurt when you're knocking on the door with, with trying to appeal to strangers to give you their time and to ultimately let you inside their lives so you can learn who they are and write knowingly about them and write with respect about them as well. This is so important. It is not, we're not talking about, we're not talking about journalism, put down journalism. We're not talking about snarky kind of stuff. We're talking about respectful reporting of people that might have been overlooked, but have something to say, maybe has not been said, or maybe it's not been said by these people in their own way of saying things, but is the way of, of the quest for knowledge expanding the, 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 the table of interest to people who are normally are not heard from except statistically, making people who are unknown people worth reading about and describing them in a way that a short story writer does. That's all it is. You get those people to reveal things about themselves that when you're reading the story, you're kind of just blown away that they would say that to a journalist. How do you develop that kind of trust? You gradually develop that trust your way. If, if, if you're a young man and you get on a date and you develop in your f first impression with a young woman, you're, 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 you're doing the same thing. Journalism is going on a date. You start trying to, with, with respect and, and deference and reticence, to know people. Gradually telling about yourself as you're inquiring about them. And a little, the second date, a little more. Third date, a little more. Fourth date, more, more, more. And in my case, the first knock on the door, if, it's, if I'm allowed in, it's telling them why I want to talk to them. I have a reason I'm knocking on doors. I want to see certain people. I thought I want to know that person. I have, and when I go, and I'm sincere. You're upfront with them about what the motivation. Absolutely unlike right. your editors at Esquire, you're upfront with them about what what you're doing there. Yeah, I am. I have always been that way from the time I was when a copy boy was. When I got out of college, I just walked in and got a job as a copy boy. I I was dressed as a boy who didn't need a job. So my father's fine tailing was on my 21-year-old body then, <laughs> walking into the New York Times and wanting a job. And I, I didn't get it right away, but in time I got a job as a copy boy. <clears throat> Why was a copy boy best job I had in my life? Because I was inside the building and I was now seeing for the first time the faces and the tailoring and the posture of men and women whose bylines I would see. But only I knew what they looked like. The reader of the New York Times never saw their faces. It wasn't, they, weren't being, they were not being promoted as now the Times promotes people, but not in those days. And I was getting to know these people little by little. And some of them were very helpful to me. We used to have a great reporter named Meyer Berger, who was the greatest reporter in New York with the New York Times. He, he was very helpful to me as a copy boy, and he helped me with my first piece. My first piece, he helped me get it, he edited it, 
There's a piece, I was a copy boy and I saw this building, I don't know, it was about a building with electric lights around. There was Times Square and had this building, it's a three-sided building, it's still there in a different form. It's called the Times Tower and that's where the headlines, 16 million bulbs out there on this three-sided building forming headlines. And I was a copy boy and I said, well, how the hell are those headlines form those, those words that weren't around the building? And I did this interview with this guy, just walked in the building, I showed up, knocked on a door and met the guy on the third floor of that building and was up on a ladder playing a kind of accordion that formed the, he had sentences to be, to be headlines and he formed on his, with his fingers, what would be the lights outside the building forming the letters that were the headlines. That was my first piece at the Times. And I wrote it and Meyerberger helped me with a few phrases. What was going, was through, your head, what was going through your head when it came out? I thought I'd won the Pulitzer Prize, <laughs> Nobel Prize. No, I was great. I didn't get a byline, but I, people knew I wrote it. It was on the editorial page. They didn't have bylines in those mm -hmm. days. My second piece was about a mo an old silent screen movie actors. That could in the Sunday Magazine when I was a copy boy. So I thought as a copy boy, I was a member of the paper. I had I didn't lie, say I was a reporter, I was a copy boy. When I went to talk to the old movie star, uh, the uh, silent screen movie star, I said, I'm a copy boy, and she talked to me, and, and that got in. So what I'm saying is, it is being there, it is pursuing your curiosity, presenting yourself as a well, as a respectable person, and a person who respects others, good manners, which you learn in the store. Mm -hmm. If you have a father and mother who run a store, you learn good manners. You learn to be nice, to, to be kind to the customer. Why? The customer is supporting your life. The customer is your subscriber. And you learn at 11 or 10 to be polite to people, particularly your elders, because all they're around, they're your elders. That carried me into journalism, well, well endowed with behavior and how proper behavior eventually earns you from people who are sensitive to it the right of allowing you to be with them more than otherwise would be the case. If you're rude or presumptuous or, 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 or too, if you're too stuck on yourself, it has to be modesty and well-behaved people are good qualities for a journalist to have. Are we is talking about what you want to hear? You're doing great. Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> is being gay to lease, does that make that harder? Like, do, does your reputation precede you? When you go, like, when you tell Girardi, I want to do a story on you, do you, like, do you think Girardi goes back and reads that DiMaggio story and is like, oh, God. Wait, I mean, like... No. I don't think Girardi even knew who I was. Really? No. He don't, I don't think he did. That, that actually brings up another question I wanted to ask you, which is... The, so the Sinatra thing came out this week, right? And it was going around and everyone was really excited about it. A large percentage of the people who were really excited about it were journalists. And I feel like journalists have this incredible just love of your work. People aspire to do work like you did. They, I think people appreciate what you did in that incredible streak in 66, sort of opening up what magazine journalism could be, what, what this stuff could be. Uh, but I, I wonder how you think of your readers and whether you think readers read your stuff differently than journalists do, and are readers your customers in the same way that your subjects are? Like, who, who are you picturing when you, when you write? Who are you writing for? I'm writing for me. I'm writing for me. When I was a kid, I wanted to write about that sign, that electric signs. Why? Because I was so curious, and I had to satisfy my curiosity, so it's me. Or, or the, the movie, the silent movie star, Nita Naldi. 
I just wanted to, I read about her and Walter Winchell said this, and there's a little old lady who used to be a silent movie star who lives on the hotel on off Broadway. And she's now inspired Carol Channing to come to Broadway in this big musical smash hit going to be called The Vamp. And this, this, this Carol Channing is going to be playing what the Nita Naldi of that 30, 40 year period when Nita Naldi was Ruta Valentino in silent films. And she says, this woman is in his hotel. Where, where, where? And I went, my New York Times, I bought, the, they had the telephone books with the, the yellow pages of every hotel in New York. So I went from A all the way through to call every hotel. And the great thing about working at the New York Times is I didn't have to pay for the telephone calls. <laughs> and in my off hours, when I was finished my getting sandwiches and thing for the, and I went probably four days and I got to editor E, E, and I saw Edison Hotel. I called the Edison Hotel. Is Miss Naldi there? And some guy said, she's not here now. She'll be back later. God almighty. And I had, I had talked to hundred. And I go, show up. And my next break, next day, I don't call Miss Naldi. Uh-uh. I show up. I'm in the lobby using the house phone. Miss Naldi, yes. I'm a reporter for the New York Times. And I read last week in Walter Winchell's column that you are the inspiration for this forthcoming Broadway show starring Carol Channing. I should be in that play, not Carol Channing. <laughs> I'm sorry, Miss. Yes, I should be. I think. Well, I said, I wanted to ask you, can you talk about it? Who are you? I'm, I said, I'm a copy boy. I'm not ready to see you now, but how about a half an hour from now? Uh, so I waited a half hour, and I go up to the elevator. She tells me the floor, and I open the door, and she's dressed as if she's in a silent screen production with Rudolph. <laughs> she's got the long, the hair and the, and the wig. and the, uh, there, were, there were four parrots on cages hanging down, <laughs> and the furniture looked like it was out of the silent era. And she proceeds to sit down and bitch about Carol Channing. But we finally <laughs> got all with that, and she told me about her life. And I wanted the life of this obscure person. And you see, when you are an obscure person yourself, and you identify with obscurity in a little beach resort in the wintertime of obscure people who buy dresses, or you go through life wondering about people, especially when they have the in the background a semblance of great fame, and then out and you outlive it and you have no fame, and now you're an obscure figure in a hotel off-Broadway called the Edison, and yet you have the memory of a time when you're ready for your profile with Mr. DeMille. When you have that, it strikes within me, it resonates with me so richly, because it's the kind of character I want to re-illuminate. But through my reporting, I want to bring that person back to their time of fame, or at least the memory of a better time than they have now. And there's where, as a, as a, I'm not creative. I'm not making up anything. I'm not, I'm not Philip Roth imagining anything. But I am, I am creative in how I use my material and actually what I choose in my subject. I wanted to obscure. So that's why Sonata wasn't for me. But I made that something. Better he didn't talk to me. Because he talked to me a bit of disaster. <laughs> because what can you ask Sinatra? They'd be like, what can you ask? Did you the, not push very hard to get him? Well, after I got, after I knew what I was doing, I didn't want him. But not that he ever said, oh, I want to talk to you finally. No, I didn't want to. But with DiMaggio, we never talked to him much. The best piece I wrote that's as good as Sinatra, and it's the same kind of piece in Sinatra. The same, I wrote the same piece twice. I wrote this one in 1966 was published, the one you mentioned, Sinatra. In 1996, I wrote the same story, but it was about Muhammad Ali. 
Mm-hmm. There's a story called Ali in Havana, right. which Ali could not talk. Sartre would not talk, but Ali could not talk. And both pieces use minor characters to tell the story. Both, that's the same story, except in 1996, when I submitted it for publication, first to the New Yorker, which turned it down, then Esquire, where I thought I had some connection, turned it down. And everybody, seven, 11 periodicals turned that down. Rolling Stone turned it down. Uh, the commentary magazine, I even went there to get it. They didn't. And, uh, Sorry, commentary magazine. So Gates Lee's big, you know, major magazine writer, bullshit. I was turned down by everybody. And then finally someone had a second it's thought. It's going to make people listening no. feel so, uh, but so much better. It goes to show you, you don't have your so-called reputation as what Nita Naldi. It doesn't grow with you in age. You, you become you, old, too. When you get a story rejected by Esquire, don't you just kind of want to be like, hey, Esquire. I, I, was rejected, I was rejected two years ago by Esquire. I wanted to do Peter O'Toole again. And their editor, David Granger. You wanted would, to do the sequel? Yeah, I wanted to do that because I feel, I feel this way. It's very important. Let me get a chance. The story never dies. The story you publish is not. There's another story you can write 20 years ago in the same story. As you evolve, as the character gets older, You've gotten older, times have changed, and now you interview guy that you interviewed in 65, I interviewed Peter O'Toole in 1963. Right. To go in 2012 and talk to him again would be great, and I couldn't get an assignment from Esquire where I published before. That blows my mind. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Do you, it does. I, well, anyway, you get rejected, and part of being a reporter is to know how to live with no to know how to say, oh, I didn't get that story. You don't get all the stories. And when you do stories, sometimes you don't get published. And I don't get published. I had, I mean, I didn't get published. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, <laughs> but let me tell you, you never outlive or run too fast away from the rejection slip. It's there waiting for you sooner or later. What about uh, critics? Is that also something you just have to yeah, deal with? Yeah, I, I, when I finally got my book together in the New York Times. I, I wrote it, and, it, and the New York Times book critic named Christopher Lehman Haupt took that book a, a month before publication and destroyed it. Worst, one of the worst reviews I've ever had. I've had bad ones following, of course. But this was, hurt me very much because I thought, well, there goes, there goes all my work because the, the book wasn't in stores hardly. It was, it was a month before the publication date. So there wasn't a chance for other reviewers to review it. And, it, and it was a terrible thing. And I thought, well, there goes that book down the, down the toilet. And I called my editor. I said, it looks, looks like we're down the toilet. She said, we are down the toilet, I'm afraid. You'll be there right. <laughs> so I thought, that's nice. But the only thing that saved me, and here's where another reporter saved my life. I bet no one in this room has ever heard of a reporter named Murray Kempton. But you'd have it. Anyway, he worked for the New York Post. He was a columnist. And he saw the review. I had never heard of Murray. I mean, I knew Murray. I never talked to him personally. He called me up. He said, what they did is disgraceful. They're trying to kill the book. I said, yes, they, and they have, I think. He said, no. He said, I'm going to write about it. Tell me about it. I, well, what's there to tell you? They, they reviewed this book, and you read the review. Well, anyway, I'll talk to you later. Next day, he writes a great piece in the New York Post, a big attack on the New York Times, and against this little flunky book critic. <laughs> and then a guy from, from Woman's Wear Daily named Mort Scheinman calls me up and says, hey, I want to interview for Woman's Wear. So he comes over. And suddenly I have, because of the lousy review, a story <laughs> accruing to my credit and to the, and it finally became what made that book a popular later bestseller. 
Because, because they were taking that negative view and having it turned around, thanks to Kempton initially. Played the victim. Did you ever talk to that guy who wrote the, the first one? Interesting, the guy that wrote the bad review? Yeah. You know, I haven't. I, I shun that guy to this day. I have guys like that. <laughs> no, I do. I think that guy was shitty. And I was pissed. And I'm pissed now. I'm 81 years old. I'm still pissed off. <laughs> I can tell. Who else are you still pissed off at? This is a great venue if you Listen, just want to share. I don't want to. I'm on tape. I have, to, I have a long list. A long <laughs> list. Let's deal with something more positive. Uh, how do you feel about the state of, uh, of magazines today? All these magazines are checking you. Well, the magazine I told you I read is edited by the not on the great reporter and editor. I mean, I don't have to blow smoke up the, you know, where of Remnick, but I'm telling you, he is really good. And the people that work for him, I think that The New Yorker now is the only magazine you really should read every week. You have to. I don't think you have to read other the other, I could, without exception, all the other magazines, I don't think you have to read them. And I think you have to read the New York Times. I think the New York Times uh, is a much better paper than when I work for it today. It doesn't have the anti-government tone that I want. If I was editor, I would get people after Obama. I mean, I voted for the guy. I think he's a disaster as a president, and disaster most through his, through his Justice Department and, and, and muzzling the press, succeeding. And nobody's, there's no Salzburg or Halberstam to bust ass in Washington anymore. The Washington Bureau is a wimpy place right now and has been since Obama's election, or since 9-11, since actually. The press, when it comes to contending with government and censorship or the, or the, or the maneuvering that government has, has done because of the 9-11 and, and the Iraq war and allowing its reporters to be embedded with American troops. And the Times allowed that. I said the most disgraceful thing, when you let a journalist ride in a tank that is owned by the Defense Department, you become a flunky of the Defense Department. You become, you become identifying with the troops that are saving your ass in Iraq. It, it happened. Is there I, anyone who you think is doing good work on that front? Hmm? Is there anyone who you think is doing good work on that front? You mean in the wars? There's yeah. not, well, not one, one, uh, and, and Pakistan and, and Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan, there's no good reporting. There's no tough reporting on, on Karzai on one side or on, on, on the American policies there. There's no tough reporting on the, on the State Department, Defense Department, uh, nothing. You think there's, that's an, an institutional thing or because there's a lack of talent and stars at the paper? I think we cannot underestimate how September 11th, 2001 changed the consciousness of this nation to a point where you could not be critical of the government in a time that it declares was war. And while we don't have martial law, as you might say we have in Egypt, we do. It's martial law, the mentality of journalism, that, that, that you don't want to risk being perceived as lacking in patriotism. Advertisers won't put up with it. You, you write pieces that get in that, that offend readers in sufficient number and advertisers that might be more conservative than the reader. 
you got you're gonna you're gonna cost your paper paper a lot of money at a time when papers can't afford loss of advertising. Yeah, do you so think the, people are scared because of the state of the industry? I think every newspaper has a, every good reason to be scared. And don't ever underestimate that papers like that. Oh, we have our editorial page here, and we have our newspaper here, and advertising doesn't affect us. Don't believe it. It does affect. But we people, reporters, become masters of their own sense of self-censorship. They know what not to do. So you don't have to have someone tell them not to. They know what not to do. And that the problem is they know too well what not to do. And that's why they're not Halberstam anymore. And that's why they're not Salisbury. Those guys didn't care. And they had people report before them like that. I don't see... A guy named Herbert Matthews. No one ever heard of Herbert Matthews, but he was reporting on this on the Cuban story, and he was vilified for for writing about Castro in a positive way. Howard Sam was a really good friend of yours. Yeah, I had a falling out with him once that I didn't talk to him for ten years. So right, I stole, just, stole just a story not, from just you. Just right? a book critic. Sometimes a friend I don't talk to for ten years. <laughs> uh, I got over it though. Yeah, he stole a story, right? Or he wanted to go do the same story. <laughs> but you guys made up, and you yeah, and you and you talk about writing. Pardon? You guys would talk shop. Oh yeah. Oh, when the, we were we were we were we we made up. It was it was. I just I was so offended, and so was he. I think. And for ten years we couldn't talk. He was offended by your offense. No, I felt. I was doing the story I never did. You know the story. I was at Iacocca. And I didn't, I found that was more Iacocca, was too much of a celebrity for me. And he was too much in control of me, in a sense, of making me, giving me too much access. Sometimes, he was running Chrysler at the time. That's yeah, but the, yeah, he was running Chrysler. And let me tell you, sometimes you think, oh, I don't have access. It's too bad. Uh, sometimes you get too much access. And it kills you. I had too much access. I was allowed to live in his house in Michigan <laughs> to travel with him on his Chrysler plane to sales meetings when he would make a speech trying to bail out Chrysler, which was in real trouble. This was 1980, 81. How long were you living in his house for? Uh, I, I was on that story for a year and a half, from 1980. How did you feel about that? Well, anyway, I, you know, I, I was home. I mean, I was just traveling. Well, I'm gonna, let's, let's, I don't want to dwell on this, but okay. just, to, just to finish it. Uh, I felt that he was such a super salesman of cars, but he'd tell things that I knew he didn't believe, and I knew that I had evidence that he didn't necessarily say what he thought, and that would put me in a position of making him look like a fool, if not a liar, and I didn't want to do that, so I got out of that story. I didn't do it, but I didn't know how not to get out. I, sometimes you don't know how to get out of a story. You really don't, because you're not trained in journalism. To get out of stories, you're trained to get stories. Definitely not stories you've been working on for 18 months. Yeah, I, I, but I, I, when you get to know the people well, as I say, you must to write. That was going to be them. for a book, right? Hmm? That was going to be for a book. How did you tell your editor that it wasn't going to work? Well, I had a good thing happen. Well, first of all, Halberstam wanted to do a story, and that's what we had a problem. Right. I said, David, you can't do it. Till he I called you up and said, I'm going to do the same story. Yeah, and I said, David, we can't write the same. Well, I'll be doing differently. I know you won't. I said, I'm, I have a, I have Iacocca. I had I have my pocket, my head. I, so I don't need, I'm going to do about, I'm going to do Ford and General Motors as well as Chrysler. I said, listen, David, you do what you want, but I can't, suppose I, he just finished a book on basketball. He'd written a wonderful story about Breaks the Portland the Trailblazers. Yeah. Uh, I suppose I, I do a story on the Knickerbockers next year, and I'm talking to, uh, to the, the manager, uh, the coach of the Nick. He said, I wouldn't like that. I said, well, why do you think I like this? We can't do this. I'll tell you what, I won't do the story, you don't do the story. No, I want to do it. 
because this story is attached is part of of my my he had a whole oeuvre of writing he was going to do and this was part of it i said i can't believe this i can't believe it i was best man at your wedding i'm your best friend how could you do this we will wait we'll work it out i said we will work it out we can work it out do it david so i didn't do it but not because of that tape. I didn't want to do it anyway. But where I got off the assignment, a writer called, uh, wrote, Lee Iacocca, a publishing firm headed by a guy named Jack Romanos. I can't remember what firm it was. What's the name of that company? Simon and Schuster. Simon and Schuster. They wanted to give Iacocca, a, have a ghostwriter come in. The same guy that did a major book on, on Chuck Yeager and a major book on... on uh, they wanted a ghostwriter to finish your work? No, they wanted a ghostwriter to go to Iacocca, and they were going to pay him 150000 bucks. I was paying him not a nickel to work with me. Uh, but So I said, Lee, showed me this letter. He said, you know, what do you want me to do? You, are you doing this book or not? I said, there's a guy who would pay you $150,000. do not be foolish. You can put this in your diabetes foundation thing you had and do this book, and you'll get off. You can attract Volcker, who was, you know, other people you want to blast off on. And, I, and when you finish the book, maybe we'll get back together again. So that, he says, okay. So we did the book. He sold a million copies. It was a bestseller for so long. But I was so happy to get out of that book. Yeah, that's a pretty graceful exit. It was. Lucky. Nice break. And then I, what I did is instead of writing about the Italian superstar, you see, I'd written about Italians, as you know from hearing me earlier. Here was an example to writing, writing about, about a respectable Italian, not a, a mafia guy, not an a antisocial character. Uh, success, but it wasn't my kind of story. So I went to write that year, 82, I went to Italy, and I started researching my own Italian father, and I wanted to write about him, which I did in a book called Unto the Sons. Not many people bought it, but it was what I wanted to do. Well, the reason I wanted to ask you about Halberstam is I'm wondering who you talk shop with now. I have, I don't want to embarrass him, but in this room, is my best friend and the brother I'd ever have. It's Nicholas Pileggi. He's um, came with me today because we're supposed to have dinner after. I talk to Nick about everything. I have I've known him since he was two years old. Our mothers were sisters from Brooklyn, and our fathers were first cousins from this village in Italy. So we have immigrant fathers, and we have mothers who were a generation removed from immigration. And from the time I was. Uh, a copy boy. Nick was a copy boy in the AP. We shared apartments. We grew up together. Uh, our, our relationships with women, we discussed. Marriages, we discussed. Sadness and rejection, we discussed. I mean, Nick is, is as close as I've ever been to anyone except my wife. Except for Nick, I don't have anybody. I had Halberstam to this degree for a while. It's a very special thing for a man to have a friendship, uh, a, love, a love relationship with man that is heterosexual, but is as binding as anything. Uh, because men tend to be competitive, and if you're successful yourself, you know it's a lot of successful people. And as with Halberstam, who was the, the most uh, gifted, aggressive, talented reporter of the kind that I've never seen surpassed. But he was so committed to getting a story that he would knock me over for it. And he did. 
and I never got over it except 10 years later I did get over it. But it took me a long time. Do you guys make each other better? I don't know. I know that it's amazing that, that we were able within a, maybe a period of a month or two to get back to where we were in the pre-Iacocca situation. And then I was fortunate in, in, in being with him in New York since he didn't travel very much when I, during his last 10 years. And I got, we got to, to see one another on the average two or three times a week and also talk on the phone every day. There are people, um, it's, I mean, you talk, it's like, like having a, a shrink you're seeing every day, except a friend is better than a shrink, but in a way s serves the purposes of being someone you can confide in on about anything imaginable. I don't have anybody except for Nick on like that now. Are you still trying to get better as a journalist? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 you asked me something about who you write for. I, I, the only thing I regard as an achievement that I, I think I've, I've done two things. One thing I've done that makes me proud is I've never mistreated anybody in print. To the best of my recollection, I have never gotten a letter or a phone call from a person that I wrote about and said you did me wrong. I don't mean misquoting. I, I mean, beyond that, I mean, you, you, I'm sorry I talked to you. I never had that happen. And, this, and the second thing I feel, I've never, from the time I was a copy boy to the time I was a daily reporter, to magazine writer, book writer, I've never written anything that I didn't think was the best I could do. That's it. I know I could. If someone said, well, would you like to have had another shot at this or the book? There's only one piece in my life that I wish I had done. And I have to tell you about that, don't I? Yeah, you do. Yeah. It won't take long. Yeah. When I started writing for Esquire, which was five years before I left the Times, I wrote a lot of pieces. And I developed a very good relationship, a real friendship with the editor of Esquire, whose name is Harold Hayes. He's well known among people who care about magazine writing. And Harold Hayes was my editor on all the pieces we were talking about. And one time he called me at home and said, Gay, I've never asked you for a favor, but I'm asking you for a favor. Oh, what is it, Harold? He said, James Baldwin had promised us a piece on Harlem that would be that would be printed with these magnificent illustrations we have on Harlem by some some Tommy Keogh, I think his name is, somebody who's well known as an illustrator. And in those days, this is the 1960s, you released color and, and, then, and then the writing would come later and you were stuck with it. Once you released the, the, the illustrations or photographs or whatever it was, it's not that you could pull it the last minute because the technology they didn't allow. Right. They had to run this piece. And instead of writing to the pictures as Baldwin was supposed to, 
he wrote an essay about something entirely different that could not go in the space that are already has been, been, been appropriated by these Tommy Keogh, K-E-O-G-H, I think is the spelling. And he said, you have to go to Harlem and write something. When? He said, I have to have it by Monday morning. This was Thursday. Monday morning, mm-hmm. Gay, just try. We're going to go, go, can we have your room at the Teresa Hotel? This is in Harlem. And do you know anybody? Do you know any black journalists that can help you? Once I know one at the New York Times, the name is Junius, Junius Griffin. The name Junius Griffin, again, if you look at the book on the New York Times I wrote, was the guy under the, under the editorship of Abe Rosenthal and Arthur Gelb, once wrote a story about the Blood Brothers of Harlem. It was a fake story about how these guys were going to come down from Harlem and rip up Manhattan. Junius Griffin Brothers. Is it a fake story? It was, it was no, there's no Blood Brothers, but this story, and, and Rosenthal was stuck with it, he published it, and almost like Al Sharpton, he denied it. You know, he's like, like Antoine Broly, she was violent. Well, Rosenthal wouldn't admit that he got taken in by this Judith with I like Judith J- Jason Blair 1.0? Yes, right. Some, it was like a Jason, but not as bad, but it was in that category. But I, he was the only black guy I knew on the Times. So the Times wasn't then into its sort of affirmative action period, whatever it is. Well, I tell you, I could, Junis, do me a favor. I have to do this favor. The other, let me buy you dinner and pay you. Just escort me. Tell me where I should go in Harlem. Where, where do I go? And he said, well, you got to go to Wilt the Stilt's place. You got to go to this and this and that. He says, can you come with me just one night? And this is Thursday night. He said, I will. So I registered. I, had a, I took a room for the weekend at the Teresa. And this guy went around with me, and he was all right. But I didn't really know the characters. I couldn't develop in a, in a weekend. I didn't meet any person that, that, that personified the story. If I'd met Wilton Stilt, who was a famous basketball player who owned this joint, he wasn't even around. It's just the name was Wilton Stilt. Maybe I'd have done something with that. I don't know. But I did the best I could. And I wrote the story. And I got it in. I stayed up all night, Monday and uh, Sunday night. And Monday morning at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, I'm getting to the end. 8 o'clock or 9, I'm walking into Esquire with this piece. Harlem at Night, it was called. And Harold says, very good, wonderful, thank you. They ran it. And I thought, I hope no one will read Esquire. <laughs> <laughs> About a year later, a year later, Harold Hayes comes back to me, wanted me to do something. Not go to Harlem again, it was some other stupid story. I wanted, didn't want to do it. He said, listen, I published that piece you was below your standard. I said, you stupid bastard, don't you? I didn't want to write that goddamn piece. <laughs> I'm never going to write anything for you that I don't want to do. We're finished. And that's it. That's the one time I succumbed to the charm of an editor. <laughs> and I never did it again. That was the one thing. And I never, well, you'd never find that piece published by me. You never saw it collected in anything. You didn't, you didn't anthologize that one? Boy, you sure didn't. We're going to have to track it down so we can put it up when <laughs> yeah. we post this episode. Um, I have one more question that I'm kind of dying to ask, which is a really corny question, but okay. I'm just going to ask it. Is that okay? Yeah. I'm really interested, as you can tell, in like you, you in this moment of, of your life, and and in Mr. Bad News, in that 
story about the obituary, Alden Whitman, you, you ended that story by basically asking the guy to write his own obituary, which was a kind of creepy move, but <laughs> amazing. So I'm interested in how you would write a profile of yourself now. How would you approach, what's the story of Gay Talese right now at 81? Well, it is really a career of getting to know people to the degree that I felt I could write about them honestly. It's about a, a person who's lived, as I have, a fractured life, being born into a, a kind of divided sense of self, being the son of an immigrant on one side in a time historically when with Italy on the side of the Nazis, I didn't feel very comfortable as an American, though I was born one, I, I felt, and the kind of way I lived my life from to age 81 tonight was being a little bit removed. At the same time, endlessly curious about how my life measures up to those people who I'm hoping will open the door and let me come in and sit down and start exchanging with me information about how they got through the days and nights of their life and how they dealt with certain adversarial relationships they had or disasters they experienced and sadness that's part of the deal and how they did it. So I want to know how people did what they did and I want to know how that compares with how I did what I did. That's my whole life. It's not really a life. It's a life of inquiry. It's a life of getting off your ass, knocking on a door, walking a few steps. Sometimes a great distance is, is, is actually is, is spent in pursuing a story. In one case, I went to China to see a soccer woman and it didn't result much of a story. In fact, no one published it. But You published uh, it. I published it, yeah. I got something out of it. But that's all it is. You know, it's the life of, 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 of boundless curiosity in which you indulge your curiosity and never miss an opportunity to talk to someone at length. Now, a lot of people that I, I meet who go to journalism schools complain there are no jobs. And I think to myself, you have to think of journalism as an art form. You have to think as a journalist that if you want to do a kind of writing that you might think is on my level, you have to think of yourself as an artist. I thought of myself as a short story writer. The short story writers that I admire were, were artists. They're John Cheever and they were John O'Hara. And I mentioned others, Fitzgerald. But when you get to know success stories in the world of the art of theater, of movies, of dance, all the art forms, those young people, some of them went to college, they wanted to be an actor. And what do they do? They audition and they work in restaurants and they drive taxi cabs and they they do a lot of grubby things to pay the rent. And when they can squeeze some time into taking, to getting an audition or, 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 or maybe practicing or however actors practice, this could, be, this could be true 
of a singer, it could be true of, of a ballet dance, whatever, modern dancer or Alvin Ailey dancer. But they don't just go out of college, go to the Yale Drama School and then find a job with a serious drama company or get a place in a, in a, in a, in a play. And so the journalist has to do the same thing. The journalist wants to do that kind of writing that we will call in the art form, journalism as an art form. Instead of doing crap for newspapers, it'd be better they work in a restaurant and find time when they're not working in a restaurant to do the kind of research to fulfill your, your ambition as a curious person because you want to write about a certain place or a certain thing or a certain subject. Maybe you have to do it on your own. If you're going to keep working on a newspaper, you're not going to do it because they're going to tell you what to do and how long you can do and how little time you have for it. So just think of yourself as an artist and think of yourself, you know, the actors now, you think that Robert De Niro was a big success and or, or all these big names. Some of them, when they were 24 years old or 21 years old, before they were got a break and discovered and did a, something that made them uh, uh, hireable, we're doing grubby things like cleaning toilets in some restaurant. Does that make any sense? So get a job in a restaurant. <laughs> All right. Okay, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern this week was Gavin Jenkins. Thanks so much to Gay Talese. Uh, oh, that story, Mr. Bad News, the one we talked about, the, the obituary writer. Talese gave us the rights to that story. It's never been online before, and it's up right now on longform.org. Uh, the rest of the stuff we talked about is also up in the show notes. Go check that out. Thanks very much to Tiny Letter, as always, and to Warby Parker for sponsoring us this week. Thanks to our hosts, the Literary Reportage Concentration at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. That's at NYU. Thanks. Oh, I don't know. Man, thanks, thanks to Lise. Wow. Okay, we'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.